0: In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
1: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet? There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
2: Hey, history enthusiasts. You get not one, but two events in history today. On with the show. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was January 22nd, 1925. It was frigid in Nome, a tiny town of about 1,400 people on the west coast of Alaska, right up against the Bering Sea. Long winters, blizzards, and below freezing temperatures were the norm in Nome, so the icy town was often hard to get to. That was to be expected. But on this day, when the town was in desperate need of a serum to stop a diphtheria epidemic, that inaccessibility posed a huge problem. An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. That's how Dr. Curtis Welsh, Nome's only doctor, started his telegram to towns all over Alaska and the U.S. Public Health Service. People were dying, and it was clear that the outbreak was a crisis that needed immediate attention. See, diphtheria is a potentially deadly bacterial infection, especially in children. It spreads easily, causing fever, chills, and a thick coating on the throat and tonsils that makes it really hard to breathe. And in the 1920s, there was a vaccine for diphtheria, but it wasn't widely used yet. And when the first person with symptoms of diphtheria went to Dr. Welsh for help in December 1924, Welsh misdiagnosed the condition as tonsillitis because no one else was showing signs of the illness. That Inuit boy died the next day. And until January, Welsh would misdiagnose more people and more people would die. Emily Morgan, one of four nurses at Maynard Columbus Hospital in Nome, once had diphtheria and soon recognized the symptoms. It wasn't until January 20th, 1925, when Dr. Welsh would correctly diagnose diphtheria in three-year-old Billy Barnett. Diphtheria is definitely not the diagnosis you want to hear, but now that he knew the real issue, he could move on to treating it properly. And there was an antitoxin available that could cure diphtheria, but there were a few problems. Maynard Columbus Hospital had 8,000 units of the diphtheria antitoxin on hand, But they were expired, and the doctor didn't want to risk making Little Billy even sicker. And per Murphy's law, Dr. Welsh had ordered a supply of the antitoxin in the summer of 1924 to be sent in from Juneau, Alaska. But the shipment didn't make it to Nome before the ports froze. So when another child was diagnosed with the illness on January 21st, he gave her 6,000 units of the antitoxin. It didn't work. She died that day. With the number of diphtheria cases and deaths quickly growing, Dr. Welsh reached out to the mayor to call an emergency town council meeting. And on the evening before he sent his urgent telegram, Dr. Welsh declared to the council that he would need at least one million units to curb the epidemic. The council called for a quarantine and put Emily Morgan in charge of it. But they still needed the antitoxin. So the next day, Dr. Wells sent the telegram to let all major towns in Alaska know about the epidemic and to Washington, D.C. to ask for assistance. Over a million units of the antitoxin were available at hospitals across the West Coast of the U.S., but it would take them a while to get to Seattle, Washington, where they would then have to be sent to Alaska. Fortunately, a hospital in Anchorage had 300,000 units of the antitoxin, but it was still over 1,000 miles away. Daylight hours were short. Waterways were frozen. Planes which had open cockpits and water cooled engines were just unreliable. And the closest train station was in Nenana, Alaska, about 700 miles or over 1,000 kilometers away. So, how would the cure get from Nenana to Nome? Dog sled, of course. At a January 24th Board of Health meeting, Superintendent Mark Summers proposed a dog sled relay. One team would leave from Nenana with the antitoxin, and the other team would leave from Nome. The two teams would meet in Nulida, and the Nome team would head back with the antitoxin. So on January 27th, as Dr. Welsh and the nurses back at the hospital cared for an increasing number of sick people and waited on the larger shipment from Seattle, the dog sled journey began. Driver William Shannon picked up the 20-pound package of antitoxin at the train station and took off with his team of nine Malamutes. The next several days would be a saga made for Hollywood, a story complete with high-stakes drama, a ticking clock, and adorable, heroic dogs. There were many cases of hypothermia and frostbite, a pesky reindeer, a flip sled and lost package, dogs that died of exposure, and wind chills down to minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit. In one of the tale's most dramatic moments, famed musher Leonard Steppola drops his dogs, led by the Siberian Husky Togo, on a dangerous shortcut across the Norton Sound. And of course, U.S. news outlets were soaking it all up every step of the way. On February 1st, Gunnar Kassen began what would turn out to be the last leg of the relay. He headed out in near blizzard conditions with now legendary Siberian Husky Balto as the lead dog. And on the morning of February 2nd, five and a half days after the relay started, Kassen arrived at Front Street in Nome with the life-saving serum. Nurses went around the town and outlying villages giving people the antitoxins and comforting affected families. Nurse Emily Morgan even helped a father build a coffin for his son. Thanks to the assistance of hundreds of dogs and dozens of people, the quarantine was lifted three weeks later. The legacy of the relay lives on in the Iditarod Trail sled dog race and um, all the shining tributes to Balto. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Chandler Mays, our producer. We'll see you here in the same place tomorrow.
0: From BBC
1: Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
0: I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is
1: Uncanny USA.
0: He says, Somebody's in the house, and I
2: screamed.
1: (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
0: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts? time ends time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a man. available wherever you will get your podcast limited
1: availability in select areas visit at and hyper for details snag a job is where america goes to hire
2: Hi everyone, I'm Eve, and you're listening to this Day in History class, a podcast where we build the time machine and all you have to do is hop in. The day was January 22nd, 1984. Apple introduced its new Macintosh computer in an ad during the Super Bowl. Though the Apple II, first released in 1977, was super successful, it was being outclassed. Apple released the Lisa, a personal computer with a graphical user interface and mouse, in early 1983. But the computer was expensive, at $10,000, and it had other drawbacks that made it less than appealing. The Macintosh project began in the late 1970s, at the same time the Lisa was under development. Apple employee Jeff Raskin aimed to create an affordable, easy-to-use computer. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, took notice of the project. The Macintosh was envisioned as less expensive than the Lisa, but still powerful and accessible to the average user. Apple announced the Macintosh 128K to the press in October of 1983. And on January 22, 1984, The Macintosh was introduced to Super Bowl viewers in a commercial known as 1984. Advertising agency, Shiat Day, created the ad. Lee Cloud was the creative director. Steve Hayden was the copywriter. And Brent Thomas was the art director. The ad was shot in one week and cost about $500,000. Steve Jobs loved it, but the board of directors was not impressed by the commercial. But Apple ran with it anyway. The commercial ran once in December of 1983 in a late-night spot in Twin Falls, Idaho, and was screened before previews in movie theaters. But the Super Bowl spot was its most famous showing. Ridley Scott, director of the science fiction films Alien and Blade Runner, directed the commercial. In the 60-second commercial, a woman carrying a sledgehammer runs through a dystopian landscape inspired by George Orwell's 1984. A televised Big Brother-like figure is lecturing a room full of workers when the runner throws the sledgehammer at the image. The commercial ends with the following text and voiceover. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. The woman is interpreted as symbolizing Apple and the Big Brother figure as representing IBM. Essentially, Apple saves the masses from an IBM-dominated future. The commercial got a lot of attention, and it won several awards, including the grand prize at the Cannes International Advertising Festival. The commercial is recognized as one of the most memorable in Super Bowl history. It's also credited with making Super Bowl commercials as important and popular as they are today. Later, Apple created another version of the ad to include an iPod, and the commercial has also been recreated by others. Two days after the ad aired, Apple had its annual shareholders meeting where Steve Jobs presented the Macintosh. The Macintosh was the first commercially successful personal computer to feature a mouse and a graphical user interface. In the three months after the Super Bowl, people purchased $155 million worth of Macintoshes. By September of 1984, Apple had introduced the Macintosh 512K, which had four times as much memory as the original. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you've seen any good history memes lately, you can send them to us on social media at podcast. Or you can go the old-fashioned route and send us an email at this day at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you same place tomorrow.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal
0: podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god.
2: work.